Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Welcome to another installment of the world's number one podcast, In Bed with Nick and Megan. Ahoy. My guest today is Nick Offerman. Thank you for having me. <laughs> From the title, Nick and Megan. I'm welcoming to our bedroom today, my wife, Megan Mullally. <laughs> Megan, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, let's have sex. <laughs> <laughs> There's only three guys, three other guys in the room. Yeah. So we're we're used to that. We're used to up to seven yeah, guys. Yeah, this is nothing. And eleven women at any given time. Mm. So we do record the podcast from our California King bed in our house. I feel like we should name uh, our bed. No, not to tell everybody. I mean, privately, I agree. Okay. But I don't think the world needs to know the name of our bed. All right. We're, we're lying astride. Cute name. And on this podcast today, we will be discussing all things Nick Offerman. This will be a Nick Offerman-centric oh, no. podcast where Nick will be grilled, interviewed, caressed, and emotionally massaged well, with questions about his life and times. Well, uh, if Are you, you starting? I just want to say to the listener, if you're having trouble sleeping, this might be a good episode <laughs> to put on in the background. Oh, I don't know. This could be the thing that propels you to superstar. This Nick. could be my big break. This could be it. <laughs> All right. Let's start with the young Nick Offerman, shall we? Okay. So Younger even than you are today. Oh, before today. Please state your age, year of birth. Uh, current age and year of birth. Current age, 49. Year of birth, 1970. Yeah. You just missed 69. Story of your life. I always miss 69. Mm -hmm. um, Except when I'm the six or the nine. All right. So you were born nice. in Burma. I was not no. born in Burma. Oh, not born in Burma. Nick was born in... Were you born in Manuka? No, the nearest hospital uh, Joliet. is in Joliet, Illinois. Okay. And so you can tell when people are doing a bad job of interviewing me because they say, so you're from Joliet. <laughs> and I say, no, but on Google, mm -hmm. you saw that I was born in Joliet. None of those things are ever right. P.S. Dear Listener, um, Wikipedia, IMDb, they're all completely wrong. So don't take your interview questions from those. Yeah. Uh, so Nick was born in 1970, the swinging 70s. Yeah. Is that what they called him? <laughs> That's <laughs> I don't right. I think so. And uh, I'm going to fill in some of the blanks. Okay. Nick's got a great family. 
His father was a history teacher. Well, his father, they're both, everyone's still living that I'm about to mention. His father was a history teacher at that time. Social studies. Social studies. With, with. I'm like the Wikipedia of this podcast. A focus, uh, but he really into history and geography as well. Uh, ooh. And his mother was a labor and delivery nurse. But at that time, what was she? She was uh, uh, the mother of four. She was a oh, she wasn't a nurse, a then. homemaker. Yeah, she. After my her fourth child, my younger brother Matt was born. Uh, she finished her degree after she had four kids. She was how badass! She went and finished her nursing degree, and then became a full time labor and delivery nurse. God, amazing! Yeah, yeah your parents are cool. And um, how many siblings do we have? Three siblings. Uh, Lori was born in '69. She's a badass. Yeah. Carrie was born in 75. She's a very funny, uh, nice woman. And the baby, Matt Mailman, was born in 1977. The king of the family. Yeah. Uh, All right, so give us some, just give me me three highlights from zero to 18. Three highlights. Age zero to 18. First three things that come to your mind. Riding uh, on the tractor with Grandpa Mike. And then later, Uncle Don and Uncle Dan. Cute. That's the first thing. Because he grew up in a farm town, and his uncles owned a giant farm. Yeah, they still, my two uncles still are. What did they farm? Hogs? Soybean and corn, and they had hogs until I was in high school. All right. Next beautiful memory? Um, Going to Wrigley Field to see Cubs games. It was usually once or twice a year, and that was just an absolute... It was better than Christmas. Like mm. It was the year revolved around a Cubs game. <laughs> and this is when they were terrible. <laughs> um, but they're, they're that beloved. And I just want to note, sidebar, you just giggled exactly like your father, okay. which is going to subtract 13 hours from the next time we will have sex. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'll try and keep <laughs> the lid on it. Is there anything I can do to gain that time back? Uh, yeah, definitely. We'll see how the podcast goes. 100%. Um, the third thing would be uh, playing lead tenor saxophone in my high school jazz band. Um, the several performances, uh, sophomore, junior, senior year, when we got to play in the auditorium or at functions around town, and we got to play songs like Sweet Georgia Brown and String of Pearls and In the hmm. Mood. Uh, really j- was um, was a, a very delicious moment for me. Oh, that's so nice. Um, all right. I'd like to know who your first girlfriend was. Like who you considered a girlfriend. An actual. That you went, you know, you had more than one makeout sash. Or let's say more than three makeout sessions. That would be a girlfriend. I feel like I didn't really do much in the girlfriend department until high school, until freshman year of high school. Um, and so, yeah, the 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 first woman that I had uh, a run in with was never really a girlfriend because she was a senior and I was. 13 and and turned out she had a boyfriend the whole time so that didn't really pan out this is so sordid um yeah it was pretty dark uh (laughs) her dad was the local tv repairman oh no (laughs) um 
Oh, yeah. God, I have to really think. Was um, a very sweet young lady who, when we were freshmen, named Michelle. And and we were both in band. And she was really nice. And she was a cheerleader and I was an athlete. And so we saw each other. Was it Michelle Obama? Uh, I don't don't know what her maiden name was. I don't think it was. Michelle Obama. No. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah, it was a pretty, uh, there were pretty much not a lot of not white people in my high school. Was it Michelle Pfeiffer? No, it was not Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, but that was my, that was officially my first high school girlfriend and it was pretty unremarkable. Um, things did not, I think we dated for probably two months and then, uh, we both decided to go our separate ways. Did you, um, was this relationship consummated? No, it was not. It was pretty chaste, and I think... Even though you lost your virginity when you were like four? Well, that's that was the uh, previous sort of messy... Yeah, the TV repairman's The TV repairman's daughter. daughter, yeah. That is a silver lining, though, that he could then come fix your television. It is. That, that was a perk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I mean, the thing was, I was very confused um, about my burgeoning, like, uh, virulent sexuality. Like, I, my, my body was, I understand, in hindsight, the phrase raging hormones. Like, my body was saying, start making babies ASAP. And we live in a society where that's not ideal. And so socialization and good manners and decency were combating the hormones. You really went through the change, though, um, because when you were a kid, you were lanky, and then you just turned into this thick slab of beef. Hey, thank you. When did the beef transformation happen? It happened, uh, I'd say it happened in two shifts. The first one was like about junior year of high school. Uh, Something happened where I had been a middling uh, football player on the team. Something happened to me where I suddenly became the best tackler, Hmm. which which was completely out of left field. Like because there were like the the gym rat like badass guys, and they were the but something happened where suddenly I was like, Hey, I can hit these guys harder than anybody. And so they made me the head hunter, like the, the special tackling guy. Um, but then after the year after high school, so 18 going on 19, then a thickening happened mm-hmm. where suddenly I was like, Holy cow. I'm now I'm terrifying mm-hmm. and I'm starting theater school. So I'm like shaving my head into Mr. T haircuts and I really look scary, and I love it. Well, it's quite a transformation in uh, the family album when you see the young Offerman compared to the godlike human <laughs> who lies on this bed before me today. It was just a slip of a thing. Yeah. <clears throat> um, very cute, though, I, have, I must say. Very, very cute, sexy, handsome, adorable. All those things. There's no need for that. I'm I'm grateful for your taste. <laughs> so um, when you're talking about playing football, I just I can't imagine you 
You've never been in a fight, right? Yeah. Never hit anybody. Mm-mm. Except for me. Hey, um, that's not. <laughs> take that back. I, I take it back. Just kicked. Yeah. Just some kicks. <laughs> you want some of this as I hold my foot up threateningly? <laughs> Watch yourself. Uh, but <laughs> playing football, first of all, I love that they call football a contact sport, like holding hands. I don't think, I think contact sport is misleading when you're like ramming into people and causing brain damage. Yeah. I think there should be a different term for it. But I, I don't, I can't even hardly imagine you. Pl- I mean, I can see how you'd be good at it because you're athletic, but it's hard to imagine. It was really fun. And I mean, youth is, you know, it's just like you can also imagine me doing some of the hijinks you're aware of on stage with like stage combat and uh, gymnastic, like that stunt kind yeah. of stuff. Mm-hmm. But youth is such an important ingredient in, in those activities. Um, yeah. And it, I quickly learned, like, it was a very small high school, and um, I, for a while, I, I, I'm sure it no longer holds, but I had the record, the school record for interceptions in a season. I was a defensive back, and it was super fun, uh, but immediately when I got to college, I went and looked at uh, a football practice, because I was... Because I, I stood out at my high school, I was like, oh, maybe I can get some kind of scholarship money or something. <laughs> I went and looked at the University of Illinois, a Big Ten school, and literally just burst into tears. When I, <laughs> you did? When I saw, yeah, I, I said to the whatever assistant coach like that was uh, shepherding me, I said, I think I'm I'm an artist. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a, a theater major. Did you really know that soon that you? were an artist or are you gilding the lily slightly for the purposes of peat casting no because i feel like you didn't really know oh did you know well like uh, yeah because i i knew here's the thing like you your uh helen keller analogy is always hits home because explain what the analogy is real quick it, it's like i knew something in me i knew i wanted to entertain people i well, i I meant the Helen Keller part of it. So in the oh, go ahead. Well, in the in the in the movie, uh, when Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf and mute, finally makes the connection, she's being. uh, What was the name of the woman who was trying to? Anyway, a a nice lady, a strained teacher, and bring her out of this prison that she's in because she doesn't know how to communicate with anyone. Um, And she pours water on her hand. And while she's pouring it, she spells out the word water in sign language onto Helen Keller's palm. And Helen (laughs) Keller goes, water. So she understands. I don't know how she'd know how to pronounce it, but she does it in the movie. So that's when the, uh, the penny drops so to speak, and she figures out how to communicate and break out of her silent uh, prison. Yeah. Well, so, so I... So my Nick broke out of his silent prison. I had this idea. The thing was, I knew I wanted to entertain people, and I, and I had an idea that that was somehow acting in some sort of acting capacity as an actor. Um, but in my community, in my entire sphere, the world told me that was not a choice available to me. Like... Uh, in high school, when it junior year, 
everybody had a meeting with the guidance counselor uh, who smoked a pack a day sitting in his office. God rest his soul. Art Art John, an ashtray of a man. And he would give you this form that had like 36 choices. That was literally like lawyer, plumber, landscaper, priest. And like (laughs) you had to pick, you know, like what do you gravitate towards? And and then we can help you figure out a college. Mm. And I was like, none of these are right. Um, I love playing the saxophone, but I think I really want to be an actor of some sort. And everyone was like, oh, no. It's as though I had said I wanted to be a leprechaun. They were like, no, that's not a real thing. You can't get <laughs> there it? from here. I had a literal Helen Keller moment then when uh, I was dating a dancer who was a year older, and I drove her to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana for an audition for the college dance department. Uh, and while I was hanging out in the hallway during her audition, I ran into a couple theater students and I can't remember how in the world I happened to strike up a conversation with them. They must have said, hey, kid, you can't be hanging out here or something. But it came out that they were theater students. And I said, what do you mean? What does that mean? And they said, we, we study theater, you know, acting in plays. And I said, well, then what? Can you get a job doing that? And they said, yeah, in Chicago, for example, or places like New York or London, you can be paid to perform plays. And that was my Helen Keller moment where I was like, oh, and I went home and said, mom and dad, I'm going to audition to be a theater student. You can get paid to do plays in Chicago. <laughs> and I, I mean, it blew, it was such an epiphany. Uh, and I gave the, I did it. I went and had to audition and write an essay to get into this theater conservatory where they only take 16 actors a year. And looking back at how <laughs> hilarious and terrible it all must have been because I'd never done this kind of audition before. How did you get in? If you, I mean, you. I here's here's my guess. Talent. Well, think about um, it. It was it was very much like a regional theater training program. So there's a lot of Shakespeare. They're training you to go to like Illinois Shakespeare or to do um, more pageant-based or presentational theater styles. And so when you're doing shows like that. You need talent and and good actors to cast in the roles, but you also need a few guys to carry the good-looking people on and off stage, (laughs) on palanquins and in horse carts and whatnot. You know, if you're doing the Three Musketeers, you need a couple thugs. So I think I slipped in through that sort of loophole. Did you have any kind of, like, movement audition or singing or anything like that? No, I mean, I do think... Uh, I was asked about that, and I said that I was really interested in their sword fighting uh, mm. department and their Nick, mo- their movement department. Nick is really coordinated and um, good with movement and, dare I say, the dance. And he was a fight choreographer um, and has done a lot of that kind of thing. But, yeah, I always thought that you could have been... You could have had a little more of a dance... Uh, dance background if you'd really wanted to it's not over it's not <laughs> i mean i just started a band within the last few years it's <laughs> full dancing yeah i made a joke a few years ago like i'm gonna be a dancer haha <laughs> everybody laughed well guess what yeah i'm a dancer so you never know you've arrived at your true calling yeah but back to you you go to the 
U of I in Champaign, Urbana. Mm -hmm. Is it wrong of me to say that I don't like the name Champaign or the name Urbana for towns? Especially Urbana. No, I mean, people get to like Champagne what they like. Champagne was a tribe, right? Wasn't that a... No, I think he was Not an explorer. Oh, oh, then I don't like him. I don't. Or no, I'm thinking of Champlain. Champlain. There's a Lake Champlain. Um, Champagne. I'm not. I don't understand why it's the name of a town. And Urbana is a really sure not cute yeah, name. Yeah, that's like it's like Towno. Towno. <laughs> yeah. City e. Yeah. Cityton. Satina. <laughs> so anyway, I just needed to lodge my formal complaint. You know, and I have to say, uh, while we're, while we're on it, m many of the uh, residents of the town call it shampoo banana, per <laughs> perhaps because they feel uh, that's better a similar version. But also, why is it hyphenated? I thought it was two different towns. It is. It's because it's oh. a little twin town. Oh, okay. But confusingly, it's it's known as Champaign-Urbana, but the college is called University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So they don't they don't know their ass from a hole in the God ground. I mean, damn I love it, them. The ineptitude. They know how to grow delicious sweet corn, but God, get your town You're name straightened for out. Them. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad that we got those things off of yeah. our chests. All right, so you actually graduated from college. That was today's hot take. I did graduate. Uh, we I took a year off um, because we toured a kabuki show. Oh yeah, so talk about let's talk about this. Nick was a member of a kabuki theater company in college. This is what I'm talking about with his ability to express himself physically, <laughs> and. You were on a tour for a year? Well, no. The t we toured uh, Japan as part of the school year because our professor and director, Shozo Sato, our sensei, um, was getting ready to retire. So in a celebratory way of his career uh, of adapting Shakespeare and Greek dramas to the traditional Japanese kabuki theater style, there was this tour to Japan of our show. Um, and it uh, it was 1991. The first you Gu also went to Hungary, am I right? Well, yeah. So the first Gulf War had started, sadly, and um, so some producers said, "This, hey, this anti." Thanks for saying sadly. Well, it's, you're it's, against war. Is that what I you're trying against, to say? Yeah, I'm anti-war. Okay. I'd say this is an anti-war podcast. Nick's against war, everybody. <laughs> war is over if you want it. <laughs> if you want it, that's Yoko, Yoko and John, from our Bed In podcast. Right. We've come full circle. So some producers picked up the show, and we did a professional production in a great regional theater outside of Philadelphia called the People's Light and Theater Company. It's in Malvern, Pennsylvania. We did it there for six months. We did it in Philadelphia proper. Then we toured. We took it to Hungary and the island of Cyprus. Mm -hmm. Um and we were supposed to play it in Transylvania for some reason, but it got canceled because of some... Too many vampires. Some They had to call it off. Too many vampires. And so we took a year off to do like a professional year of this Kabuki play, which was called Kabuki Achilles. And it was an adaptation of the Iliad. And it, wa it was a beautiful play. It was anti-war, the stories of Achilles and Hector. And it ended with 
Achilles saying to Hector, basically, why have I just killed you? You are as I. We're the same. We're brothers. Why are we fighting? And people like that? People were moved by it. Okay. And and, uh, since this is uh, partly my podcast, I just want (laughs) to... I just want to insert, it makes me think of these Tom Waits lyrics that I love so much from his song, Day After Tomorrow, uh, talking about both sides in a war. Uh, How does God choose, he says, tell me, how does God choose when both sides are praying to the same God? How does God choose whose prayers does he refuse? Who spins the wheel and who rolls the dice? When it comes to war, it just makes no sense. I'm I'm firmly anti-war. <laughs> <laughs> You're beating a dead horse over there, buddy. <laughs> we got it. All right. He the guy doesn't like war. All right. That's part of what makes you you. Yep. Okay. So. Um, <laughs> I'm loud and proud. Fuck it. <laughs> All right. So, I need to know. This is for me. We might even cut this out, although this will be the one thing that you're going to want to keep. Um, when we were on our first time to go to a restaurant and sit across from each other, and it was at that place on Franklin that isn't there anymore. What was it called? Mm. That Italian place. We got, like, pizza bread. Yeah. We sat by the front window in the middle. Anyway, we did it. Baghettis. Baghettis. I don't remember. It's like... It used to be called Spaghetti's, but then they changed it, and then it closed. Um, we were sitting at a table, and we were talking about our past relationships, and I was saying that I was open to men or women. Mm. And I think you wanted to like get on board mm-hmm. with that. And so you told me a story about an interaction you'd had with a male of the species mm. when you were in Hungary. And then since then, you've recanted that statement. Please tell me the real story. Uh, okay. When we were in Hungary, we... Uh, uh, are you sure? That, <laughs> sure it was me? When we were in Hungary, we had like a, a, a mixer with this other theater company from Hungary. Um, uh, and we saw a production they did. They were like a street theater company. And it was very hippie. And um, and they did a production of Romeo and Juliet, but out on the street. And it was actually really cool. They used no props. Get to the good part. Except for... I don't want to hear about their production of Romeo and Juliet. Okay, so get this. In God, the, in the nursing no! Just ju- <laughs> stop. Okay. I'm editing you. So so the this guy who I think played Romeo was very was a very beautiful guy. And, and, Here we go. And the whole thing... Had a bit of <laughs> drunken bacchanalia to it, yeah. and we all, um, after seeing their production, which was rippingly good, uh, picture this. No, the one d- detail that I will include is when um, I believe it's when Tybalt was. No, slain. no, no! I'm cutting you off. Get back to the story. So we all went and like hung out and had a, a big wine party. And there may have been some hashish as well. Involved. I'm listening. Uh, and we were hanging out in the park area called the Avenue of Heroes, I believe. Which I'm is sure. Incredible in Budapest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, 
And he and I had a very friendly evening that was kind of flirtatious and and sweet. And I'm not sure if he was gay or not. I don't think so. Like no passes were made, but it but I had a girlfriend in our show, another actress in our Kabuki show, and she was like dancing a lot with the sort of the sort of Nick Offerman of their company, sort of the swarthy, uh, the hot guy. Well, no, just the bigger, the more, guy who didn't like war, the more bruiser, <laughs> the more bruiser guy, um, and uh, and so you know it was pretty harmless. Um, but that was the, I think it was sort of to answer the question, that was the closest I ever came to sort of being attracted to a guy, but nothing really went down. And I mean, and that sort of answered the question where I was like, this is really nice and fun. And this guy's definitely beautiful. Um, but I'm not, I'm not thinking about getting up on his joint. Okay, so can I just tell you that at that table, at Bernini's or whatever the fuck that place was called, I swear to God, you told me that a Hungarian guy went down on you. <laughs> no, that, there's no way that <laughs> you I... You were trying to get in the conversation. I don't... Because I was talking about the women folk. I, I absolutely, like when we first were going out, you seemed so exotic. You seemed like something <laughs> off of... Uh, uh, like a uh, a a, a, Gr a Grecian uh. urn, like you seemed like a creature of legend, and so I absolutely would expect that I would have embe embellished things to try and impress you as one does, but I would never have made such a claim. Okay, well, I guess memory is tricky. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> all right. Well, I am glad that we uh, had a public reexamination of that because God, I have been waiting for 19 years <laughs> You've been to waiting. get to the bottom of that story. You've been waiting for our podcast to I've manifest been waiting. Itself. I was like, maybe in 19 years we'll have a podcast and then I can like spring it on him. And it worked. I feel better. I feel like a weight has been lifted. Oh. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with it, but... I'm no You're plenty gay as it is without having actually had a guy a Hungarian guy go down on you in the garden outside well, of a wild party. Thank you. While you were traveling with your Kabuki Theater Company. Thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. So in Kabuki Theater it was it men and women or just men? Tra traditionally, traditionally in it's Japan, men. it's just men. And they and they play the female roles. Yeah. Okay. So, but and, you had women in your company. And can I give you a fascinating nutshell about why that is? Yes, please. When the theater form was developed, I want to say approaching 400 years ago, it was when there were big samurai wars going on. So you have these different, you know, groups warring over land. And, and there were a lot of female prostitutes in the camps of the soldiers. No, duh. Uh, but then syphilis became rampant, and the women were banned from the, the tent sites. Women and their puss diseases. Can you believe it? So then the soldiers began sleeping with the more, uh, the, uh, more supple young men that were available. And... When the women were there, they would put on these shows, making fun of the soldiers and, you know, putting on these plays where they would act out all the roles. That, and they, were, they were, loved these shows. 
Then when the women were banned and they started sleeping with the young guys, they made the young guys keep doing the shows. And it was from that that the misogynist tradition of traditional kabuki, where only men to this day are allowed to perform the style. So were those men, did they become like eunuchs or something, or they were just younger men who substituted? I'm, I'm sure the answer is not very friendly. I mean, I'm sure like there, there probably were some gay men. There were probably other men that sex was forced on them if they happened to be young and gorgeous. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's all ugly, you know, human nature history. Yeah. Um, but but so but you loved you loved being in the kabuki theater company. I did. And to answer your question, we had women in ours. Okay. Because we're but not. you loved it, and that was one of the great experiences of your life, right? So formative, yeah. I mean, specifically the you know the sweeping Zen teachings of Shozo Sato. Everybody that came under this guy's tutelage came out. You know, you're in, you're at theater school in the middle of Illinois, and suddenly you're in. It, you know, whatever was great and pure about the Karate Kid movie, the first one, I never saw the second one, but the whole Mr. Miyagi experience where somebody comes in with some Eastern culture and is like, look, you want to chill out and beat the champion? Wax on, wax off, my friend. And like literally applying that to our lives, for example, I because I had an agricultural background and I was young and strong and and was good with tools i became his teacher's pet in a lot of ways so he would have me uh he had a this thing called japan house where he had turned a farmhouse in the middle of urbana into a japanese style house with the traditional tatami mats and the paper walls and all that where he would teach tea ceremony and ikebana flower arranging and sumie black ink painting and zen meditation And so he had uh, Japanese gardens and, you know, his plants and his flowers were very important to his curriculum. So I would help him pull weeds in the garden. You know, I'd help him move stuff around. And the pearls that he would drop were just blew my mind. Like one time we were pulling weeds and he said, you know, pulling weeds is the exact same mentality that causes war. And I said, I'm going to need more than that, Sensei. <laughs> and, and he said, well, you know, we decide in human nature that I want this iris to receive the nutrients from the soil, the water, the sun. And I don't want this milkweed. That's a weed. I don't want it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to kill it so that my offspring get all the good stuff. So we're going to kill the weed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... He he also gave me the greatest lesson of my life, which is always maintain the attitude of a student. No matter how old you are or how learned you think you are, if you always have something to learn to improve yourself, because as humans, we're never done. You know, we never reach like, ding, I'm perfect. (laughs) I've I've learned it all. If if you feel that you've learned enough, that's when you get bitter and you say, when are you going to throw me a parade? I got my PhD, or I'm the, you know, but instead, if you maintain the attitude of a student, so that you always have a project that gets you up in the morning, it gives you somewhere to go, and that just changed my life because instead of setting worrying about the sort of goal-oriented system that our country sells us, 
Like you got to go to college so you can get a job on Wall Street and have three BMWs. We're all pretty aware of the despair and fallacy involved in that path. But if you just maintain, if you take your life and say, okay, I want to one day live in France. So you start learning French or you just start taking steps as a student. Even if you don't ever get to France, it's going to cause your life to blossom in ways and you're on your natural path by studying what it occurs to you to learn more about. So this guy, and he, he just affected our lives so profoundly. And so I wasn't yet, I was still years away from becoming remotely decent at acting. I was still really ignorant to good acting. So me and two of my good friends were the, we were called the comic, so, the comic soldiers in the show. So other men and women were cast as the, for their voices and their beautiful, their beauty and their movement skills. And we were the three clowns. Um, and we were also valued because I was also a, t a scenery carpenter and a technical director. So like in a touring company, we could be the clowns, but I could also be in charge of packing the scenery into the road boxes and all that kind of stuff. I love that. Yeah. That was that was a really uh, nice. Well, it, he, I mean, he's such a big part of my life that uh, let's see. I, he married us. Yeah, I, that was ten years later. After I graduated, he married us wow. in Los Angeles with a tea ceremony. He's a really lovely man, and his wife is really wonderful too. Alice. Yeah, Shozo Sato is his name. S A T O. Um, I also really felt that I needed to say that nobody saw that second Karate Kid movie. Okay, I mean, you know, so, some, I feel like some people might have. You don't have to apologize for it. You have absolutely, literally no connection to the movie. Whatsoever. No, but I, but, but I do love Jackie Chan. Okay. Do you know him? No, mm -hmm. I don't know Jackie. A lot of uh, beautiful profundities in your last... Um, monologue next so thank you for that well I, I mean that's that's why you know it all comes from him that's that's why he's such a big part of my life so we're gonna blast off from tokyo from japan and we're gonna come back to the united states of america <laughs> so then after college you moved to chicago mm-hmm and then we had the Chicago theater era. Yeah. Wow, we're, we're really doing like a thing about me. Chronological. It's all about Nick. All things Nick Offerman. That's the name of the episode. Well, while in college, another massive part of my college years, which I guess this is true of many if you do college right, is that uh, especially from my small town, you know, sort of uh, uncultured vacuum, the sphere that I lived in, even even though Champaign Urbana or Urbana Shambana <laughs> or Cityton uh, is in the middle of Illinois, for me it was like Marrakesh. Like I learned that there were still Jews because um, I had read about Jews and heard about them, but I didn't realize they were still around. I learned about bagels and locks and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> let alone all the other minorities that weren't like. Christian-based white people, which is what my town was. And so college was mind-blowing, and especially 
I met the greatest friends of my life in the theater department, many who became roommates, who gave me all of the counterculture that I had been missing. You know, this is 1988, I got there. David Lynch, William Burroughs, Laurie Anderson, Neil Gaiman comics, and all that, just talking heads, they might be giants. And I was like... And you said even the Beatles, you were like, wow, what, what's this? Yeah, I mean, my cool friends were like, oh, you, here, this is the White Album. And I was like, you guys... This is really good. This is fucking amazing. <laughs> Do people know about this? Um, no, I really, like, exploded into, like, oh, thank God, I can be a weirdo and be the artist that I want to be. Um, so that was incredible. And And several of those friends, we formed over our years together in college, formed a theater company called the Defiant Theater. And I'm glad I got to see a sh one show there before the company uh, disbanded. God, it was I, so good. I am so glad you got to it see. It was so good. Yeah, and this was not, you show. weren't in the show because you were living in Los Angeles by then, but I got to see all of your friends in action and Jim Slonina and yeah. everybody. They're so, so talented. Yeah, it's just a lot of physical stuff. They'd taken this show and kind of reinvented it into this extremely physical kind of deconstructed statement thank you yeah our our, our style we our, our kabuki influences really were evident but also we loved the simpsons cartoons and tex avery cartoons and we sort of combined we sort of stirred a goulash of those ingredients and so we, we had very explosive stage combat and sort of circus hijinks mm -hmm. with a sense of irreverence and sort of meta relationship to the audience, you know. Very muscular, kind of dude-oriented, but mm -hmm. in, not in a bad way. No, and we did, and we <clears throat> made a point of having ladies as well, like the... We in all, the audience? <laughs> yes, but also on stage. I mean, it, it was... I'm teasing. But there some ladies. Yeah, we, the, the, they even formed a, there was a group of lady sword fighters that uh, people in our company were part of. But so we moved our company to Chicago, and, and I was there for the first three seasons. Um, and they ended up doing 11 seasons, I believe. And it just was a really fun, the one thing we lacked was uh, creative writing. We didn't really have a playwright writing original material that was resonating, you know. Um, but we did everything from like Shepherd plays and we did it, one of our artistic directors, Chris Johnson. That's Sam Shepherd, PS. Yeah. Um, he did some, he did some really great award-winning adaptations of And like, he had sex with Jessica Lange. Steve yeah, Sam Shepherd did, not Chris Johnson. No, um, Sam Shepherd. So we did we did have some some creative writing, but just uh, the, our contemporary companies at the time had like playwrights, original playwrights involved, and that's something we never quite got on top of. But it was the Petri dish in which I learned through the, uh, the generosity and coaching of my dear friend Joe Faust, who remains an a invaluable veteran of Chicago theater to this day. Um, he like... We were best friends, we lived together, and he like really, he, he, I, I was Rocky and he was Burgess Meredith. Like he really slapped me into shape and made me into a 
remotely competent actor. Okay. Who was your favorite girlfriend when you lived in Chicago? Uh, First names only, probably. Favorite girlfriend when I lived in Chicago. Uh, first name, Krista. Okay. Who, who I refer to affectionately as my heavy metal girlfriend. Oh, I've met her. Uh, she came to see one of the plays we did. and No, that no? was Different. Cecilia, who uh, we, she came to I see. I beg to differ. No, no, I'm positive. Okay. Trust me, because <laughs> it was traumatic for me. Because she came to see the Berlin Circle, the play where we met. Mm. And I was she hoping to win you back? Do we think? No, I hadn't seen her for a while, and she had pooped the bed pretty effectively enough that like that, like literally did no. it. Okay, no, not literally. Because I I have had experience of that in my day, of no. a literal experience of a guy that I was sleeping with who actually took the metaphor, oh, brought it into three no. D reality. No, nineteen years and counting, I have not shat upon you. While no, we not you. I'm saying, thankfully. Yeah. But no, the, yeah. here's the thing. That night was so traumatic because you and I are doing this play. We have this burgeoning romance, which to, at the time to me had an impossibility to it. Like there was this element of like, I don't think this is happening because this godlike, this goddess-like <laughs> creature, she's like, we're getting along, we're friends, but there's no way she could consider me romantically. And just coincidentally, it had been a few years since I had seen Cecilia. She had disappeared back to her homeland of Mexico. She happened to be in L.A. She got in touch. She came to see our play. And you and I weren't had not had words yet of, like, we're going somewhere. Mm -hmm. So she came, and I introduced you, and you were not having viperish. Her. Yeah, you were, like, hi. Like, you couldn't have been more icy. Yay! And I was... It's like pouring cold sweat and like, Cecilia, <laughs> it's been really nice to see you. I'm so glad what, I did Could you that. just get the, f please leave. Like, <laughs> I d didn't see this coming, but now no. have a great life. Anyway. That's funny. Yeah. Well, there you go. So that should have been a good sign for you that I was interested. It certainly, yeah, it was pointed in the right direction. Yeah. I don't think I would have been jealous of an ex-girlfriend of a guy that I wasn't attracted to or mm -mm. wanted to have a relation with. Yeah. Um, let's go back to Chicago and let's talk about Krista, just for a man. Okay. Just give me the bullet points. Krista, um, I'll say her whole name, Krista Chrome. She. Krista Chrome? Oh, yeah. Was that a real name? Uh, if it was spelled C-H-R-O-M-E, I'm going to tell you it's not. No, it was both uh, started with the letter K. Oh, that's that's very metal. Here's the thing. When we were in college, she was from uh, a nearby town, I, I think either Rantoul or Decatur. And I mean no one any disrespect by those two guesses. Because um, <laughs> some people would take that as an affront. But she and her brother had a, a hardcore heavy metal band called EKG, and Krista had black and uh, purple dyed hair, and the sides of her temples of her head were shaved. Oh, did she throw you into a bathtub once? Yes. Okay. And uh, she had EKG tattoos on her skull, 
And so we were fans of her band and we used to go to the mosh pit. This is like age 20 and like, you know, fit, this is where my football techniques came in handy because we would, I would muscle us to the front and center of the mosh pit in the hopes that she would spit on us. And she did not disappoint. This it, is definitely the best girlfriend you've ever heard about of yours. Th this was, it was the greatest. I love her. Well, so she, she worked at the local record store with my good friend and roommate Ragsdale. And so we had a connection to Krista, like our friend was her friend, but we really worshiped at the altar of Krista Chrome. Uh, then she started dating a guy named Nick uh, while we were there. And she ended up having a wedding. She got married to this guy and she, because of Richard and she came to our plays, early defiant theater plays, she had a group of us perform a black wedding on her behalf. So all I remember about it, there's a lot of candles and incense and like black leather and makeup. <laughs> and each of us represented a different pagan <clears throat> sect. And it was really, you know, this very respectful pagan wedding. And so, so that, and that was kind of like the end of the Krista Chrome chapter. And then we like all graduated. We went away for a year to do Kabuki. All Wait, that happened. When did she throw you in the bathtub? So then we moved to Chicago. Oh. Stay with me. Okay. And maybe at the end of our first season in Chicago, we did the first play where I got a lead called The Quarantine. And closing night, at the end of the party, I was the technical director. So we all got drunk and got stoned in the lobby at this straw dog theater called, it was the basement on the second floor. And I'm cleaning up, I'm the last one there cleaning up and Ragsdale's still there because he's my roommate. And I realized Krista Chrome has been there. She's sitting in the audience and I'm playing music and sweeping. And I was like, oh, hey. She was like, hey, and you know, gave me compliments on the show and whatever. And she had remained close with Ragsdale, but none of us had seen her forever. So I'm thinking, this is crazy. Krista Chrome is like hanging out to hook up with Ragsdale. And it finally, I think she had to come out and say like, no, I'm here. I want to have sex I'm here with for you. you. Where's the bathtub? So we, we drove back to our home. It's maybe one in the morning, but there was a place on Belmont called Thousand Liquors. That, that was the latest place you could get alcohol. We stopped there and bought a bunch of Zima. That was her drink. <laughs> And went to our house. It's better and better. And we we got we we engaged in some the most intense intoxicants of my life, some narcotic situations. I don't know what that really means. Uh, I believe they call it a speedball, and it's <gasps> one you snort heroin and cocaine. No. Together, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. And then she threw me in a bathtub. <laughs> yeah. And we. What else would you do at that point? We spent a really terrific month together, um, having a lot of fun, and then uh, and then somehow reality kind of set in for that that our our path w was not meant to go further, and we bit our uh, ourselves a fond farewell. Yeah, it's hard when you're <clears throat> dating a punk girl who does heroin. It's hard to keep it going. Yeah, it's fun. Like, at first you see the allure, and then mm -hmm. you're like, oh, this this doesn't mesh well with a life of responsibility. Did you ever do H again? Horse? I never did. I never did it, because I'm smart. It's uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that I don't have the kind of personality that made me say, hey, this is my new life. I do really like this 
cut of her jib, though. She, you, she was such a badass. Uh, and I hope, I, I don't know what she's up to now, but I hope she's continues to be the champion that we always knew her as. But, but I do hope that she, you know, clean up her act a little bit just because. Yeah, you can't sustain that. No. That's a 20. If you want to live longer. Yeah, that's like up to the age of 25. And there then you go. beyond that, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I would say even 23. Sure. Although these days, 32 is the, the new 23. Not for heroin. I think that's a, that's a set timeline. All right. I won't, I won't argue. Yeah. I'm, I'm anti-war. It's a physiological truth. So I'm... By the way, when I agreed to do this podcast with you, it didn't, it didn't occur to me that we'd be digging out. <laughs> yeah, they, Nick, Nick Offerman was a former heroin user. Yeah, I, fi I finally fi figured out what Miles Davis was all about that night. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's deep. I don't think I really knew that. Oh, I guess I knew you'd done it, done heroin. I didn't know the context. Yeah. Well, um, apologies to Cecilia for icing her out. But, you know, I mean, I obviously was interested in you, and I thought, oh, snap, I may have, wait I may have put this guy off a little too long, and now he's brought his ex-girlfriend. No, yeah, she also, she flaked out. Like, she, uh, she's from Mexico, um, beautiful talented young actress we we worked together in the crucible at steppenwolf and her life choices uh which she wasn't super forthcoming about because we had planned to move to la together and suddenly she disappeared from me from her friends like ran out on a lease so like she flaked out and turned up a couple months later like word came from mexico that she was back at her mom's house and everything was okay, but she had just like said, I'm scared and don't know how to get out of this life. I want to go back to where I'm comfortable. And so she basically, you know, sort of ruined friendships and certainly ruined our thing. And I felt like I dodged a bullet, which was good. Yeah. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug but I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventures pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. So... What I'm my takeaway from this, which is this episode, all about Nick Offerman, Colin, the early years, is, and correct me if I'm wrong, lovely upbringing, farm town, not a lot of cultural uh, exposure to um, deep culture until college, a uh, couple of girlfriends. Virginity lost at an alarmingly early age. Japanese uh, went to college, uh, the college that Charlotte named. Had a wonderful experience, had a lot of wonderful experiences, great friends, exposure to the deep culture. Mm -hmm. Kabuki Theater Company had some great experiences. Got 
gone down on by a Hungarian <laughs> in a garden. <laughs> Hungarian. <laughs> Moved to Chicago, started a theater company, had a couple girlfriends. And then we don't know what happens next. Yeah. We don't know. We're going to have to listen to more episodes of the spectacularly popular number one podcast, In Bed with Nick and Megan. This has been your host, Nick Offerman, and his wife, Megan Mullally. And her husband, Nick Offerman. Did you say Nick Offerman? And some lady named Megan Mullally. Thank you for your kind indulgence. Thanks for listening. Watch the movie. There's a movie In Bed with Nick and Megan is an Earwolf production. It's produced by Megan Mullally, Kevin Bartelt, and Michael Landry. Executive produced by Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon. Music by Nancy and Beth, which can be found at www.nancyandbeth.com. If you enjoyed In Bed with Nick and Megan, make sure to rate it and review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>